John chapter 9. If you have uh, your Bibles, you can open up there uh, with me. And uh, it is always a joy and a pleasure to get to, hey, there we go, uh, to be able to uh, study God's Word, uh, to open it up to uh, see all that Christ is and all that He is proclaiming uh, to us. Uh, and uh, right now in our uh, new home, we, we moved in in, in March, and w- there's a, a unique light switch situation uh, in uh, our bedroom. There's a, a ceiling fan uh, that there's a switch on the wall that you can turn the whole unit on and off, uh, but everything else uh, is controlled with a remote control. Uh, and so uh, we keep the fan on uh, at night to keep air circulating, and we turn the light off with the remote, and then usually throughout the next day, we don't need the, the light on. Uh, and so the, the fan is going uh, throughout the day to keep the air moving. And, but then that first time we walk into the room... Uh, in the evening. Uh, the fan is going, uh, and uh, it's dark in the room. And so I, I go to turn on the light switch, but the light switch is already on. Uh, and I realize, oh, you know what? I have to find the remote control. Uh, that's the only way to turn uh, the light on once the switch has already been uh, flipped. And so uh, I kind of stumble around uh, in the darkness of the room, watching out for random Legos and other toys uh, that have been left out. And it's amazing how your feet is able to find those in the dark. Uh, and kind of zero in. So I, I finally, I, I get uh, the remote control, and I'm able to to turn the light on. Uh, and uh, once that happens, all is well. Uh, and, and last week, uh, as we were studying John chapter 9, uh, that was uh, very similar to what we looked at. Uh, John chapter 9, the very beginning, uh, verses 1 through 7, record uh, the healing of a man who was born blind. Uh, He had been living in darkness uh, and blindness his entire life uh, until Jesus, the light of the world, came uh, and turned the lights on for him, so to speak. Uh, And until Jesus comes to our aid, uh, we are all stumbling in the darkness. Uh, We are uh, trying to to search out and seek for the light, but we can't ever seem to find it uh, on our own. Uh, in First uh, Peter chapter two verses nine and ten, uh, the apostle Peter uh, aptly describes this experience. He says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, And that is the central message of the entire Bible, uh, that we are all uh, sinners who are stuck in blindness, stuck in uh, the spiritual darkness. uh, And uh, it is Jesus that we must depend upon to give us spiritual light, to give us uh, the sight to be able to see spiritual things. Uh, Only he is able to do that. Uh, and there uh, are maybe some here this morning who are, still feel like we are stumbling around in the darkness, uh, that we need to, to have Jesus turn on the lights to give us uh, new eyes to see and behold spiritual things. Uh, and part of that begins uh, with uh, acknowledging that we are spiritually blind, uh, that we depend upon Christ and Christ alone to open our eyes to behold Him. Uh, And if you are here this morning and and you haven't looked to Christ in that way, but you are longing to be able to see, please come and speak with me or speak with the person who invited you here this morning so we might tell you all that Jesus is and all that he has done on your behalf. Uh, But uh, if if John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, show us what uh, a picture of salvation, that's what we looked at last week, of it is a very clear illustration of what happens when we look to Jesus in faith. He gives us eyes to see it. It's intended to be a portrait of salvation. Uh, I would venture to say that what we are going to look at this morning uh, is what takes place after our salvation, of what does it look like for us to follow Jesus. Once the lights come on, what are we supposed to do? Uh, how are we supposed to live? What should our focus and priorities be? Uh, and ultimately, uh, how are we to interact with the world around us? Uh, and uh, I think this is very important for us to, to look at this morning because uh, often as we follow Christ, we are uh, discouraged. Uh, we grow weary. 
Uh, we, we, once our eyes are open, we suddenly see uh, all of the darkness that we used to live in and all of the darkness that the world around us still continues to be suffocated by. Uh, and as our citizenship is in heaven, our eyes are, are opened and we're still living uh, in this world. Uh, and we just begin to long more and more uh, for heaven, to be out of this world and uh, to be there in heaven with Christ. Uh, and it's discouraging at times. Uh, because it's it's a long, hard journey to live for Christ as his ambassadors here on the earth. Uh, and specifically, how are we to, to interact with uh, the darkness in the world around us? How do we interact with uh, the, the people who uh, do not follow Jesus? Uh, what are we called to, to do and be as disciples and interacting with them? And that's what we're going to see here uh, in John 9. Uh, as we looked at last week, the, the man who was born blind w- was healed in a unique way. Uh, Jesus uh, spit on the ground, uh, mixed some clay with his saliva, and then he made this wonderful paste uh, and put it on the man's eyes. Uh, And then he instructed the man to to go to the pool of Siloam uh, and wash. And if he did that, he would see. Uh, And uh, the man, uh, not uh, having ever seen Jesus, let alone anything else, uh, trusted the words of Christ, uh, obeyed. He went to the pool of Siloam, and as we see in verse 7, Uh, he went, or how it ends, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Uh, And so um, a man being born blind, uh, going and washing his face uh, in a pool of water and then coming back seeing, that is going to create quite a stir. Uh, And that's what we are going to to see as we study. Uh, We look at verse 8 all the way through verse 34 this morning. And, And what we're going to see this morning Jesus has entirely departed from the scene. Uh, He's he's not going to be seen in these verses, but he's going to come back uh, into the picture uh, in verse 35. Uh, And so the central character of what we're going to look at this morning is going to be the man who was born blind, the the man who has been healed. uh, And what we're going to see in him is the portrayal of an ideal disciple of Jesus. Uh, He's going to interact with his neighbors. He's going to uh, testify about who Jesus is. Uh, and he is going to uh, ultimately identify as one who is following Jesus uh, and standing for him. Uh, and this has tremendous value for us even in the 21st century because uh, following Jesus is going to be the same across time and space and culture. Uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the first century is going to be the same as what it means to follow Jesus and be his disciple in the 21st century. Uh, and ultimately we are going to see how any faithful disciple of Jesus is called to interact with the world around us. Uh, And we're going to see this in four attitudes that are demonstrated by this man who was born blind and who has now been blessed with sight. And so uh, the first of these four attitudes is going to be seen in chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And I would ask you to, to look with me there at those verses. Immediately after the man came back uh, and he is able to see uh, and the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. And others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. Uh, And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Uh, And again, so the the neighbors that he returned to immediately begin to notice, like, Hey, isn't that the guy who used to not be able to see? Suddenly he's walking around and he's not bumping into anything. What's going on here? Uh, and it, it's funny because the, the neighbors and those who had recognized him as being that beggar who used to sit along the road are saying, hey, is that him? And, and they're arguing amongst themselves. and like, is that him? No, it just looks like him. And he's there. And it says that he kept on saying, hey, it's me. So imagine how that debate goes. Hey, is that really him? Yes, it's me. No, it just looks like him. No, it's really me. No, I don't know. Uh, so, so there's a, a ton of irony here. that This man is consistently saying, no, it is me. I am the man who was blind. And I have now been healed. And and the the key here is that this man was very quick to go on the record uh, and to testify about who had saved him, who had given him sight. uh, And he very clearly gave 
the essential details of his healing there in verse 11, right? That he, uh, Jesus came to him, the man called Jesus, he made mud, anointed his eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. Uh, and so th- this is a very clear willingness to testify about who Jesus is and how Jesus has worked in his life. Uh, and now we, we live in our internet age and, and we are repeatedly inundated with requests to give a review. Anybody else have that, right? You purchase something uh, on the internet and they're like, hey, could you review your purchase? Uh, just to spend a few minutes and give us a, a rating or you, you go to a, uh, a diner. Some of you may enjoy writing reviews on Yelp or Google or Facebook or all of those things. I've seen some of you online reviewing things. Uh, and uh, we are sometimes quick to do that. And other times uh, we ignore that. We don't want to spend the time giving a review of, of what our experience was at a particular restaurant or how this product is, is working out for us. Uh, we just tend to ignore all of those requests. Uh, but giving this type of a review of how Jesus has worked in our lives uh, is not a request, or actually more, more accurately, this is not a command that we can ignore uh, or reject. Uh, this is an essential attitude and characteristic of anybody who is going to be a faithful disciple of Christ. Uh, This is the pattern for New Testament discipleship, that all of those who have been saved by Jesus are willing to go on the record. Uh, We are willing to testify about who he is and what he has done in our lives. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, And we should always be able uh, and be ready to give a testimony or to testify about how Jesus has worked in our lives because it's our story. Uh, This is our life. Uh, We should always be able to, to communicate how Jesus has worked in our life. I think some of the the, the keys is is being ready to share uh, what Jesus has done in us and through us, uh, how he has transformed our hearts, how he has given us sight. Uh, And now now really the the question is, are we ready to do that? If you needed to do that this afternoon over lunch or over coffee with somebody, would you be able to explain how Jesus has worked in your life? But then the, the bigger question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to go on the record? Uh, as being one who is now following Jesus, who has been transformed by him. See, there, there's a, a readiness to do that, and then there's a, a willingness to do that. And if we are ready and willing, uh, it also should be very clear that we are not the hero of that story. Uh, what does this man who had been born blind make evident as he is testifying to his neighbors and those who had seen him as a beggar? Who, who's the hero of his story? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't say, well, I went to the pool of Siloam and I washed really hard and I came back seeing. It, it wasn't based upon his effort. It was about the man, Jesus. This is what Jesus has done. Uh, and if we are going to uh, testify and, and be ready and willing, we need to also be make sure that Jesus is the hero of our testimony. That as we proclaim our faith in him, this is a, a characteristic of what it means to be a faithful disciple uh, and make Jesus the hero of the story. But, but here's also something that we must come to realize. If we do this, if we are ready and willing to testify about how Jesus has worked in our life, uh, and if we make him the hero, uh, we're, we come to now our, our second attitude of a faithful disciple. Uh, and that is a faithful disciple must prepare for division. Because if we're going to proclaim who Jesus is and how he has transformed us, that's going to ruffle some feathers. That may get us into trouble, even as it does with the man who had been healed here. If you look with me at verse 13 through 17, we're going to see faithful disciples prepare for division. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, 
for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the man or to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. And now the the, the neighbors uh, were not quite sure what to to make of this man's testimony that Jesus had healed him. Uh, And so uh, they, they bring him over to the Pharisees and they brought him to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the leaders of the local synagogues. Uh, there's multiple parties within the Jewish religious leadership, but it was the Pharisees that were in control uh, of the the local synagogues and the ones who were regularly teaching uh, the Israelites according to God's law and uh, the tradition of the Pharisees. Uh, And so the the people uh, needing some some spiritual advice, they say, okay, what do we do with this healing? How do we make sense of this? They take this man to the Pharisees, and then the Pharisees begin to uh, question him Uh, But also complicating this entire matter is the fact that this healing of the man uh, took place on a Sabbath. Uh, And this is a a couple days removed from this healing. Uh, And uh, what's stated here is that because it had been a Sabbath, and then it said that Jesus uh, had put mud and and washed and opened his eyes, uh, that according to the the Pharisees' uh, standards on the Sabbath, uh, Jesus had broken those standards. In this long list of rules, uh, they would classify, well, he made mud. Well, that's the same as kneading uh, bread and making bread. So he broke the Sabbath. And in the same uh, way, it's potentially that when it says that he opened this man's eyes, that they would view that as medical treatment. Uh, and so not only did he is he guilty of kneading, but he's also guilty of uh, you know treating someone medically on the Sabbath uh, and healing him. And so Jesus has broken the Sabbath according to their standards and their man-made laws. Uh, And that really becomes the issue uh, for the the Pharisees. Uh, They're going to to take issue with what Jesus has done. And uh, as they question this man, it becomes evident that this is this man's testimony. And uh, what we see is there's this division that takes place among the Pharisees, which is actually kind of a good thing. Uh, because they, in looking at this situation, they come to two different conclusions. Uh, and the, the first group of Pharisees, they begin uh, with the Sabbath and place that as being preeminent uh, and the, what is most important. And they say, look, the Sabbath is what is most important, and Jesus has broken the Sabbath. Therefore, if he's broken the Sabbath, he's a sinner, and he can't do anything good, and let alone he can't have come from God if he is a sinner. That's their logic and their conclusion. But then there's another group of Pharisees, potentially including Nicodemus, who we saw back in John chapter 3, who was coming and questioning Jesus and wanting to know more, and potentially even Joseph of Arimathea, who's going to be famous later on in John chapter 19, as he's going to take the body of Jesus, uh, and he's going to be the one who buries Jesus in the tomb. Uh, But ultimately, there's this second group of Pharisees, uh, who rather than beginning with the Sabbath, they begin with the miracle. And they say, well, look, no sinner could do what Jesus just did, right? How can a sinner heal a man who has been blind from birth? Uh, And they say, so uh, this man can't be a sinner because he actually healed. And so there's this division based upon how they are looking and treating Jesus. Uh, And uh, so this division takes place. uh, And uh, what's amazing is this group of of experts... uh, is so confused and so divided about who Jesus is, they ask this common man what he thinks about this really big spiritual issue. Think about it. These are the religious experts, the teachers of Israel, and they can't come to a consensus. They're not quite sure what to make of Jesus. And so they ask this man, what do you think about him? What do you say? Since he opened your eyes, let's hear what your opinion is about him. And what does he say? This man is a prophet. And that's, we're starting to see this man is more and more willing to speak openly about who he believes Jesus to be. And his view of Jesus is going to be advancing as we march through this chapter. Because back in verse 11, what did the man say about Jesus? He says he is the man called Jesus, but now suddenly he is a prophet. And what we're going to see of central importance here. Uh, is the division that takes place among the Pharisees. 
Uh, and ultimately, this division uh, is always going to take place whenever Christ is proclaimed. Uh, whenever Christ is held up as being the light, as being the only way of salvation, as being the one uh, who was sent to live and die for sinners, there will always be some who are willing to accept this. and There will always be some who are going to reject this. Uh, and when that happens, there, there's going to be division. Uh, and there's going to be division uh, between uh, those who profess faith in Christ and those who are against Christ. And we have to be prepared for that reality. Uh, in, in our uh, modern culture, I think one of the, the greatest sins, according to the culture, is for someone to be uh, unhappy with you, right? Uh, and you, we all have this tendency w- within us of we want everyone to like us, right? Uh, we don't want a, everyone uh, or anybody to be unhappy with us. And so we, we try and go through life uh, tr- trying to, to please everyone. And, and what ends up happening is it's, it's a miserable existence because no matter what we do, people are going to be unhappy with us. Uh, there's a, an, an episode of a particular television show where somebody, in trying to please everybody, uh, he, in uh, his uh, office, he tried to uh, do a, a birthday party. Rather than for individuals, he would do one birthday party for everybody uh, and as soon as you do that, uh, you're going to have conflicting opinions about what, sh- well, I want this or I want that. And trying to please everybody at once, he made everybody unhappy. Uh, another example of that we're living through right now is just COVID, right? Uh, everybody has an example of uh, or an opinion about what should or should not happen regarding the government's response. Everybody has an opinion about how different churches should respond to COVID. It was a sanctifying experience at the very beginning of uh, COVID because everybody had an opinion on what uh, we should do. Uh, and no matter what we decided, some people were going to be unhappy with us. Right? And, and that's what we are seeing and still experiencing uh, over a year into uh, this pandemic, uh, is seeing and understanding that it is impossible to please everyone. As soon as you land on one uh, opinion or one view, uh, other people are going to be uh, upset with you. Uh, and, and we accept that reality uh, in some things, uh, and, and we must accept it when it comes to spiritual matters, and especially pertaining to Jesus. COVID is divisive, yes, even more so, Jesus is divisive. Uh, and if you're going to come to a conclusion about Jesus, uh, it's going to immediately create some fault lines between you and others. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just think about that spectrum. To some people, it's utter foolishness, and to others, it's the power of God for salvation. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul writes again, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things, right? Uh, following Jesus, what, if I could paraphrase what the Apostle Paul says, is going to make us smelly, right? Uh, and it's going to give us a certain aroma. For some people, we are going to be an aroma of life. They're like, hey, I like that. Can I just be that? But the reality is we are going to be an aroma of life for some people, but we are also going to be an aroma of death for other people. Right? Those are both realities if we are going to follow Jesus. And we have to prepare our hearts for divisions to come. Uh, and this is not at all to say that we are called to be divisive people. That's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. Uh, we are called to be uh, gentle, to pursue uh, others, uh, to be gracious and kind. Uh, we don't seek division, but we also have to realize that division is going to come naturally if we are going to follow Jesus as faithful disciples. Uh, and we have to begin to be okay uh, with some people maybe being upset with us over truth uh, or not liking us or possibly even, dare I say it, some people may hate us if we are following Christ. And we have to prepare our hearts for this. Uh, and it will be this way because this is exactly how it was for Jesus himself. Uh, That's a part of the message in John chapter 9, that Jesus is the light of the world. He brings light into darkness. He gives sight to a man who has been born blind. 
Uh, But there's also when light comes into the world, judgment accompanies it. That's what we're going to see throughout uh, this uh, entire chapter, uh, that really this man uh, is on trial, but Jesus is on trial through the man. Uh, And the the conclusion that they come to about what Jesus has done in this man's life uh, is going to be a verdict on the man and upon the ministry of Jesus. Uh, And ultimately, it's going to be the same way for us. And if we are going to be faithful disciples, uh, we will be willing to proclaim our testimony uh, of how Jesus has worked in our hearts and our lives. But we also must prepare for the division that comes after we proclaim how he's worked. But then thirdly, what we see is that faithful disciples will also prefer to fear God. And this is seen in verses 18 to 23. uh, And it's going to be seen uh, in the parents of the man who was born blind. If you read these verses with me, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but... How he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. And so the the Pharisees, uh, after they had questioned uh, this man, uh, they doubted that he was actually who he said he was. So we don't believe that you were born blind. We're going to go try and prove that you are making all of this up. Because again, they're doing anything to try and discredit Jesus. And if they can discredit this man's healing, they discredit Jesus. And so they they search out uh, the parents of this man who was born blind blind. They, they find them and they summon them to appear uh, before the religious leaders. Think about how scary that would be for the parents, right? Uh, that would be a little bit unnerving. Uh, and uh, the, the Pharisees question uh, the parents, but the parents confirm the, the basic uh, fact of the case. Is this your son? Yes, that is our son. Was he born blind? Yes, we can attest that he was born blind. But but then when it comes to uh, the other questions of of how did he get his sight, uh, the parents are very careful to tiptoe through this minefield. Uh, They don't want to say anything uh, that is going to connect them with Jesus. Uh, If they say our son was healed by Jesus, they are immediately in trouble uh, and in danger of being kicked out of the synagogue. And so when it comes to how he was healed, they punt. Uh, they plead ignorance, which I, I doubt that they were really ignorant of how their son was healed. Because if you were a son and you've been blind your entire life, and suddenly you are able to see, what is probably the first thing that you're going to do? You're going to run home and tell your parents. You're going to rejoice with them, right? Uh, and so I, I, when, when we see this, uh, we see that the parents are, are really taking a step back. Uh, And they kind of throw their son underneath the bus, right? Uh, They're being questioned, uh, and they redirect all of the hostility, all of the animosity towards their son. Like, whoa, 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 we don't know. He is of age, meaning he's come to maturity, uh, which would mark him as being at least 13 years old and one day. That was uh, when when a Jewish boy became a man. Uh, 13 years old and one day. So those of you who are 13... You're, you're a man. It's like, yeah, yeah, mom. Uh, but uh, th- this is the reality here. I think he was older than that. But what they really redirect him, and they really, they, there's a, they say, put your questions upon him, not upon us. They, they punt. And then uh, their motivation behind what they say is explained to us in verses 22 and 23. Right? It, it suddenly becomes clear that they are afraid. They are afraid of the Pharisees. They are afraid of the religious leaders. Because the Jews had made it known, they had agreed 
the leaders among themselves that if there is anybody who says that Jesus is the Messiah, if there is any Jew who, who says that Jesus is the Christ, then he is to be expelled, cast out from the synagogue. And you have to understand that in Jewish culture, the central aspect of life was the synagogue. If you are cast out, you were ostracized and completely cut off, really, from your entire community. It's remarkable. What the, what, what the leaders are saying here is that, that Jesus is incompatible uh, with their religious system. This is very true. That is a very correct uh, assessment uh, of all that Jesus has proclaimed and all that they proclaim in their own man-made religion. But this threat from the religious leaders has put fear into the hearts of this man's parents. Uh, and this fear of man is, is put on display for us. Uh, and uh, the fear of the parents is to be contrasted with what we're going to see, the boldness of their son. Uh, the parents are, are shrinking back, and their goal is just calm waters, right? I will say and do or not say and not do whatever it takes to keep people happy with me. That's the fear of man. And the fear that we see here in his parents is exactly the kind of fear of man that we as followers of Jesus are commanded to not have. Listen to Matthew chapter 10. Verses 26 to 33, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. And rather than fearing God, we are or rather than fearing men, we are commanded to fear God. But what does that really even mean? What, what does it mean uh, to fear God? Uh, and uh, Martin Luther makes a, a wonderful distinction here. Uh, two categories of fear. The first one he calls servile fear. Uh, he says this would be uh, the way that a, a slave... Uh, fears his master, a cruel master who's about to punish him, uh, that fear is rooted in the harm that is going to be inflicted upon us. All right, that, that is a servile fear. But then there's another type of fear that Martin Luther characterizes. It's a filial fear. Uh, the fear that a child experiences when he has to face a loving father. It's a very different type of fear, right? That's more the anxiety of offending or displeasing someone that I love and who loves me. That's the type of fear that we are to have in our relationship with the God. It is a fear that is mixed with love. And all who trust in Christ are to continue to grow in that fear. Over and over again in the scriptures we see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all who look to Christ in faith are called to grow in this type of fear and relationship with God the Father. Uh, and the only way uh, to grow out of our fear of people uh, is to grow in the fear of the Lord. Uh, that, that's the only remedy. Uh, we, we cannot uh, expunge the, the fear of man in our own hearts. Uh, we have to grow in our fear, in our worship of God. And the apostles understood this because they had experienced it in their own lives, right? All of the apostles, when on the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed, what did they do? Scattered to the wind. Uh, they ran. And what were they afraid of? They were afraid of being arrested uh, and crucified in the same way that Jesus was going to be arrested and crucified. Uh, but later on, 
uh, these men, uh, having grown in the fear of the Lord, uh, having now been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, uh, and they are so bold, they, they are willing to stand and face the very same group of men uh, who crucified Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders said, hey, you stop preaching Jesus. All of this needs to stop. And the apostles respond, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. They feared the Lord more than they feared people. And as disciples of Jesus, we are called to proclaim our testimony, to prepare for division, but also to prefer the fear of the Lord rather than fearing people. Uh, now, this is an area that where every single one of us struggles. Uh, every single one of us is guilty uh, of uh, fearing what people might think of us, what they might say about us, uh, what they might do to us, right? If I say that I'm a follower of Jesus, what are going to be the repercussions uh, in my work? Uh, if I say uh, that I am I'm, I'm not going to do something uh, because of my convictions that it would dishonor Christ, how, how, what are my friends going to think? What's my family going to, to say? What will, my, what will my neighbor respond uh, if I share the gospel with him, if I, if I point him to Jesus as the only hope he has of being forgiven and reconciled to a holy God? How will my neighbor respond? So when, when we are fearful, we won't testify. When, when we are fearful, we are unwilling to uh, accept any divisions that may take place uh, from proclaiming who Jesus is. And yet this, this attitude uh, is of tremendous danger to us because it reveals that we are worshiping people rather than worshiping Christ. That their opinion about us is more important, and we care about that more than we care about loving and obeying Him. So we have to, to meditate upon this. If we're struggling with fear, what should we do? Pray. If we're struggling with fear, what should we do? Meditate upon His promises. If we're struggling with fear, what should we do? Meditate upon the love of God in Christ Jesus. All that He has done on our behalf. Again, the parents of this man are held up as a point of contrast. They acted in fear, but their son is going to be very, very bold. Which leads us to the fourth attitude that we see in our passage this morning in verses 24 to, to 34. It says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man... We do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the fourth and final attitude that we're seeing of a faithful disciple. A faithful disciples persevere under pressure. And this section is the big showdown. Okay? The Pharisees call this man back again to the witness stand. Uh, they summon him again and say, give an account. Uh, and the first round of, of questioning confirmed all of the details uh, of this man's testimony, confirmed all the details of the miracle. Uh, and so the Pharisees now saying, well, we can't disprove the miracle. So now let's try and disqualify Jesus. Uh, and so they, they bring this man back around. 
And in verse 24, there's such an interesting command that they give to him. They say, give glory to God. Right? They, they are exhorting him to speak the truth. But what are they exhorting him to speak the truth about? What are they wanting him to say? Well, the very next statement shows us. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. goes back to that debate in verse 16 where there, there was a division among them. They said, well, Jesus can't be any man coming from God in any way because he's broken the Sabbath. And so now, if they can get this man who had been healed to say that Jesus was a sinner, it would nullify everything that Jesus had done in this man's life. Right? If he could get this man who had been healed to say, yeah, Jesus is a sinner, so we, we have to figure this out. Not valid. Uh, and so now the, the pressure is coming upon him. They summon him and they're commanding him, hey, give glory to God. And he is going to give glory to God, but in a different way than, he, than they, the Pharisees really want him to. They want him to, to curse Jesus and call him a liar and a sinner, but he's going to glorify God by standing firm on who Jesus actually is. And so the man uh, speaks with about what he is uh, certain about and what he is uncertain about. He says, you know what, I, I can't speak with certainty about whether or not Jesus is a sinner. Uh, he only had one interaction with him. He says, like, but one thing I do know is that I was blind and now I am able to see. He speaks with certainty about that. And so the, the Pharisees question him again in verse 26. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And then... This man, who had been born blind, is really beginning to see what's going on here. He's really beginning to see that the Pharisees are coming with an agenda. And he says, well, well wait a second. We've, we've already been through this. I've answered this for you already. Do you want to hear it again? And then kind of tongue-in-cheek, realizing what's going on, he says, do you also want to become his disciples? Now notice, how is this man saying his relationship is with Jesus now? He's identifying that he is a disciple of Jesus. And now he's testifying about that fact to a hostile audience. Jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, do you guys also want to follow Jesus, the one who's healed me? And verse 28 is remarkable. What's, what's the response? We, we see the division now coming against him. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Again, uh, they are saying... Their discipleship of, of following Moses is incompatible with following Jesus. And again, there's some truth to their uh, way of thinking. Their false religion is incompatible with Jesus. But, uh, well, I'll leave that for later. Uh, but the repeated questions from the Pharisees and the, and the repeated answer from this man, they, they revile him. And what's amazing is just they speak with certainty about things that they have never seen before. Right? They speak with certainty. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But what are they uncertain about? So we don't know where Jesus comes from. We don't know his origin. Which, you've been following with us along John's Gospel. Jesus has spoken about this many, many times. They, they have been told this very clearly. And it's really something they could go and look up very easily. of Where was Jesus born? Uh, in, in the temple records. But they didn't do that. And then in, in verses 30 to 33, a remarkable portion, because this man who was formerly blind, he becomes a teacher. He becomes a teacher to the teachers. And loaded with irony. And he says, this is remarkable. This is amazing. Right? And when you think about what this man has gone through, the standard of what he should see as amazing has kind of been elevated, right? He's been born blind, and now he's suddenly seeing. So what is amazing to him uh, is pretty amazing. This is amazing, that they are unwilling to see who Jesus is. And so now that the light is kind of going on for this man, he thought he was a blind man living among people who could see, when in reality he was a blind man among blind people. People who are still blinded by sin. People who are still unwilling and unable to see. And he testifies. He says, I don't know where Jesus is from. 
but he's opened my eyes. And this proves very clearly that Jesus is not a sinner. He is a righteous man. And this is unheard of in human history that anybody who was born blind would be healed. If Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. Sounds a whole lot like what Jesus is going to say in John 15. He's of himself as the vine, and we are the branches, uh, and we must be connected to him. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so the Pharisees come to this man with veiled threats, commands to conform, and in doing this, in coming and applying this type of pressure, uh, they, they are doing what Satan has done from, from ages past this type of pressure. Right? Daniel and his friends were, were instructed to conform to uh, the culture of their time, to the culture of Babylon. Hey, just, just bow down and worship this statue of the king. Everything will, will be great. Uh, Daniel, just stop praying and everything will be great. Right? The apostles, just stop preaching and we'll let you go. The, the pressure to conform this has been the, the tactic of Satan in the world. There's a reformer named John Huss who lived in the city of Prague in Bohemia. And he lived a hundred years before Martin Luther. Uh, and he, he sought to, to bring the word of God directly to the people of God apart from the Roman Catholic Church. And this got him into a great deal of trouble. And at, at the Council of Constance in, in 1415, uh, he was tried and he was commanded to, to recant, and he said no. Uh, and he was burned at the stake. Uh, and while he burned, he sang psalms uh, of worship to God. He refused to be conformed to the culture, to conform to the, the pressure that he was facing. There are countless other occasions in church history, and today in our own nation, right? Like preparations are being made. Along those same lines, just say this, just agree with me here, just obey and go along and everything will be smooth, everything will be great. There's always this temptation, but true disciples will persevere in the face of pressure from the world and we'll persevere not because we are so strong in ourselves and in our own might, but because of who Jesus is and because of the strength that he provides to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? We have to prepare our hearts and minds to stand firm against such pressure. Knowing that it's going to come, if we're going to testify about who Jesus is, the pressure is going to come. And we see that in the life of this young man. Because what happens in verse 34? How how do the religious leaders respond to being taught by this uneducated, formerly blind man? Do they say, oh, you know what? You are right. We should rethink everything that we're doing. No. They answered him, so you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? They cast him out. Not just out of their presence, out of the synagogue. That's the implication here. This is what a faithful disciple does. He is willing to stand firm and stick with Jesus even when it costs us dearly. Even when we are ostracized by the world, cast out. When, when the pressure comes... When persecution comes, when there's animosity and angst from the world, when they're coming to try and separate us from Christ, to just do this little thing and deny Jesus. No. 
I, I know who Jesus is. I know how he has transformed my heart and my life. And I'm going to stand with him regardless of whatever consequences may come in this life. This is what faithful disciples do. And my prayer this morning is that we would, we would take these attitudes to heart. Right? That we would be faithful to proclaim our testimony. We would be faithful to prepare our hearts for divisions that may come when we give our testimony. That we would prefer to fear God rather than men. And that we would be those who persevere under pressure. And we are not the first generation to face these things, and we're not the last. Again, what it means to follow Jesus is the same across time and space and culture. And as we read through Hebrews this month, we are eventually going to arrive at Hebrews chapter 11 commonly known as the Hall of Faith. If you guys want to turn with me there. The author points to the the faith and the perseverance uh, of saints in the Old Testament. Uh, And uh, the Hebrews generation, the the audience of this letter, uh, are those uh, who were facing pressure from the world to to conform. They're, They're being persecuted as Christians and they are tempted to return to Judaism. And the Hebrews chapter 11, the, the author points to the faith and, and perseverance of Abel in verse 4. He points to the, the faith and perseverance of Abraham in verse 8. He points to the, the faith of Moses in verse 23. And then look with me at his overall summary in verse 32 and, and following. He says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. He's going to finish up this argument by pointing his audience to Jesus, who is infinitely greater and everything that the Old Testament had to offer. And I pray that we would see and behold Jesus in that same way, that we would follow him faithfully, and that maybe such words might be written of us, that we would be faithful to Jesus to the end, regardless of the pressure that is thrown at us, regardless of persecution. But may we be those disciples who are marked by a boldness to testify Uh, a preparedness to accept any consequences that come from testifying, uh, and that we will persevere in following Jesus no matter the cost, even as this man who had just begun to follow Jesus is already willing to do. Amen? Let's close in prayer.